0: Hey Brent, put your phone down.
1: Gonna write me up a 125.
0: Oh god, no. <laughs> oh post
1: crap. My, I can't read it well enough. I'm gonna have to my. edit the whole <laughs>
0: intro because Brent is now um
1: post my face wanted, dead or alive.
0: <laughs> wow, this is bad. This is really, really bad.
1: If you have bad hearing, you can't tell your don't tone death. <laughs>
0: Hey everybody! I'm Alan. I'm Brent, and we're here for episode fifty-five of AB Testing.
1: Fifty-five.
0: <laughs> Brent's pretty happy about fifty-five. So, uh, anything exciting with you, Brent? That wasn't even like a, a leading setup question. I'm just trying to see what he'll say. No, I have a
1: a sad story about a personal failure. Oh, the the,
0: the things I could say right now. <laughs> Is this a story for our listeners or just one you want me to uh, rub your shoulders while you s- s- no. lightly sob? So,
1: as you know, I went back to school and I have two classes left one on uh, graduate level research writing, researching and writing, and then I have my capstone project. Okay. Unfortunately, in the last six months, I, I, I don't want to mention it on the podcast, but you're aware at home there's a bit of a family you have, you have crisis stuff going on. Yep, and that's taken a good bit of time. Um, I so I took three days off last week. I had a big midterm proposal um, due last night where I have to write up a a research design proposal for what I'll do in my capstone project. I tried to catch up, read everything. uh, I wrote uh, about 12 pages. And when I sat back, uh, about four hours before it was all due, I sat back and I read it with the eyes like I do when my employees give me a proposal. And I looked at it and I said, this is crap. So I withdrew from the class. I got to start all over again in September. Summer.
0: Yep. Now, were you also enrolled in the uh, – or these classes overlap? Was that the purely the capstone class or that the research, the research class?
1: No, they don't – okay. by design, you should take them uh, sequentially.
0: Okay. I don't know if I've mentioned this on the podcast before, but I think I mentioned this in a blog post several years ago. But, And I mention it every time I go back and visit my alumni – my university is uh, the methods of research class I took, probably the most valuable class ever took in my life. Probably one of the ones that it's the class that taught me how to learn how to figure stuff out.
1: Yeah, that's and that's actually what I concluded when I looked at this. I was busily focusing on producing the paper and I read about 20 different um, literature articles. So I learned a lot about. The topic I'm researching, but I realized when I sat back and analyzed it that I wasn't, that I hadn't learned about structured research sufficiently. <laughs> so what I had produced was essentially a stylized book report. Oh, and yeah. I, I, I said, so you don't go back to school uh, in your soon-to-be late forties uh, because you give a crap about the degree or give a crap about uh, the grade. And I don't, and I'm very open and honest with my professors on this. Um, I'm I'm here, I do it to learn. And so Mm -hmm. when I realized that I hadn't really to my bar learned the topic that I was supposed to in this class and researching, I I had also, I had learned uh, enough of it to know that it's an interesting thing to learn. Right, the, the there's a lot of black art that researchers go through mm-hmm. to find relevant articles.
0: And indeed. So I was uh, I'm I'm old, even older than Brent, and I was in graduate school before uh, really the internet. I mean the internet existed, but my the only thing I had to research, I could pay long distance to dial up a bulletin board. There was no local bulletin boards where I went to where I went to college when where I was in grad school. where did you go? I was in, I was at Central Washington in 1993, 1992? 92 is when I got my master's. Central
1: Washington? Yeah. You went there? Mm hmm. In Linwood?
0: No, in Ellensburg. Okay. But what I learned there that I've transitioned is like things like, if you find a relevant article, you look at what it cites and you figure out – and you start looking at what other articles cite these same things and what what article – if you go read all these articles and see what they cite and really digging in those extra few levels is where you find the nuggets of really cool information and the insights, which lead to um, uh, Stephen Johnson's thinking, gives you more ideas to put together and merge together and come up with great ideas. I
1: have, <clears throat> I have thinking, been thinking about Stephen Johnson – uh, a great deal, because uh, I concluded exactly the same thing. Yeah. And there is there is a another quote that any field of study that you want to master, that if you just read an hour a day on that topic, in seven years you would be a worldwide expert. That's the quote. Given what I just went through in the last few days on that like I found lots of really great ideas connecting the dots between entirely different topics Um, uh, my research was on on uh, near real-time analytics Mm -hmm. Um, uh, I wanted to target it for obvious reasons for the the cloud market but um, there are a lot of other industries that have that same near-real-time analytics problem and have similar problems. Uh, um, What I found very attractive is uh, analyzing the healthcare industry. Um, So here at Microsoft, when we talk about um, uh, up and down times, we refer to it as either the server health or the VM health. If you do that sort of mapping while reading any of these uh, healthcare articles, you realize that, oh, my God, you could just search and replace this thing. And uh, looking for the word patient, put in the word VM, um, making some certain mappings like – the presence of a certain chemical inside the bloodstream doesn't necessarily map well, but heartbeats do.
0: Yeah. <laughs> we even call it a heartbeat sometimes. We do. Um, so I read a book on, and I've totally forgotten the book. I liked the book so much that I kept on reading through the appendix. And, uh, this was, I guess this was, I'm going somewhere with this 15, more than 15 years ago. Uh, anyway, one of the things that said at the end of the book was, uh, Gosh, to the life of me, I've thought about this book a hundred times. I have no idea. I think it was some sort of leadership book. I don't know. But it said you should challenge yourself to learn new things and subscribe to, you know, and some examples like uh, read blogs. And blogs were fairly new back then, but they go subscribe to magazines. And I subscribed for about 10 years to this magazine called Science News. And Science News was this little thin eight-page, maybe 12-page Little thing that came every week, and eventually came every other week in a little thicker format. Not much, but it was just random. It was uh, random little publications from the world of science. These aren't like you know IEEE type papers, but but little everything from a, a half page blurb to a two to three page article. And some of it, admittedly, went over my head. Um, everything I could understand, I found fascinating. And interesting. And there were always some little parallels like, oh, my gosh, this is just like something from leadership, from software, from testing, from from craftsmanship that I can map to my own world. And one of those examples is pre-Steven Johnson, um, how where good ideas come from. But just one of those ways I was sucking in uh, – I almost use the word alternate, but alternate—the word alternate now means something different in the age of Kellyanne Conway. So, but these different, uh, <laughs> these different ideas that I could uh, just sort of merge into the things I already knew, I found very valuable and very fascinating.
1: Yeah, I mean, <clears throat> when, when you definitely go through the experience, and you're cognizant of this idea that new ideas come from um, old ideas getting together, um, like uh, several times just in the last few days, I just said, oh, holy crap, it just happened, just happened to my head, literally 30 seconds ago. <laughs> <laughs>
0: <laughs> part, it's not being cognizant, being, being, there's an openness too, It's an openness like, at any t- I need to look at all this input coming in and at some middle level be able to go, are there new connections of ideas coming in that I need to act on or think about more? Oh, there's... There's definitely a thread spinning in both of us all the time. One of our... And surely we're not the only people who equate thinking to multi-threaded computing, right? No. So, <laughs> but there's always one like uh, semi-active thread in the background, kind of looking at what's coming in and looking for those connections.
1: So I, I chose, when you, when you were trying to find uh, this book title... I chose, um, perhaps unwisely, to not interrupt you and be snarky. But oh. my daughter told me...
0: Percy will call you out if you interrupt. <laughs> oh. Go on. Yeah. <laughs>
1: uh, um. <coughs>
0: Shout out to Percy.
1: Woo! I think last Friday was Dr. Seuss's birthday.
0: Uh, Yeah, I think I remember something about that.
1: What is your favorite Dr. Seuss book?
0: You know, uh, it depends on the mood. uh, There's the canonical Green Eggs and Ham, which I read to my kids a few thousand times. Um, (laughs) Cat uh, in a Hat. uh, uh, I like Green Eggs and Ham better. As do I. There's some good stuff going on there. There's a little bit of a Cats in the Cradle moment if you read through, like, um, Oh, the Places You'll Go really okay. more really more of a graduation kite kind of book you give somebody. Yep. One fish, um, two
1: fish, red fish, blue fish?
0: Which is uh I think sort of a precursor or a prequel if you will to Green Eggs and Ham? Yeah, I could buy in, that. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, I would go uh, my favorites, depending are on the movie. I'm now trying
1: are... to resist the urge to spend the rest of the podcast having an <coughs> academic debate on which is the best Dr. Seuss. The Dr.
0: Seuss Guide <laughs> to Agile software testing.
1: <laughs> <laughs> uh, we were having that... a debate at, at our house. Um, it was split into two camps, uh, Go Dog Go uh, and Green Eggs and Ham. I, w- I took leadership on Green Eggs and Ham. I, I represented that point of view.
0: Yeah, I like the, for some reason that "same I am" line. Yeah, really, it, it it rings true to my soul.
1: There's also the Grinch that sold Christmas.
0: Again, uh, that's, but because that's seasonal, it's right? Exactly. Yeah. You can't have a seasonal be a favorite <laughs> because do you pull that? I need the Doctor. I think things? you, you can. In August, you know, I don't know. Well, like the, the you
1: can, but it's just got to be fantastic. Like Die Hard is now considered to be a holiday movie. I know, I know. Right? And I'm just like,
0: okay. Stretch.
1: <laughs> All right. Shall we do a podcast?
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. How about we start off with a word from our sponsor? Okay. <laughs> Once again, the folks at Techwell are sponsoring this episode of A B testing. And they have some training coming up, uh, training all the time through SQE. They are so nice to sponsor us that I'm going to talk about them just a little bit. One would argue
1: that's the definition of sponsor, I suppose. Perhaps. Yeah.
0: Did you know that software testing isn't dead?
1: I did know that.
0: (laughs) But it is definitely changing. The State of Software Testing Profession survey published last year by Techwell, uh, participants overwhelmingly agreed. Now, again, now I'd hate to interrupt my own PSA, but if you're surveying a group of testers, you have a little bit of confirmation bias there we need to acknowledge.
1: Selection bias. Selection bias, correct. Yeah. Selection bias. Perhaps confirmation as well. All right, I'm gonna to-
0: <laughs> in the state of the software testing profession <laughs> survey published last year by Techwell. Participants overwhelmingly agreed that as long as humans were responsible for software creation, the role of the tester will be needed. That makes sense. But the same report—oh, wait, wait. wait—but the same report also (laughs) found that today's test and QA professionals are being called upon to have even more technical skills. So far, nothing I disagree with. There's little doubt that the role is evolving. Except for Brent's little interruption here, I'll let him him get on with. No, no, no. Go ahead. So as part of TechWell's uh, convergence of expert resources for software professionals, they provide premium software improvement training and certification courses through SQE training for testers, test engineers, QA specialists, and more. Whatever you want to call yourself, if you're involved in software quality and testing, they got stuff that will help you out. SQE, Training Software Testing Training Weeks, offer up to 10 specialized courses during one week in one location. This includes four agile testing courses, including an improved and expanded agile test automation course, new management, planning, and measurement courses developed specifically for experienced test leads and managers, as well as courses on security testing, mobile testing, and more. Upcoming testing training weeks are planned for Boston, Massachusetts, and Chicago, Illinois. You've been to I've never been to Chicago. I
1: have now. never been to either of those. I've been
0: to Boston, I love Boston.
1: I've been to Boston and Fallout 4.
0: I did spend a lot of time in Boston and <laughs> Fallout 4 myself, which was weird because I've actually like walked some of those trails like in not screwed up land ever. But uh that I'm all distracted on Fallout 4. Only one of the three plays games, I think. Anyway, if you've made it this far in our ad, A B test listeners can save two hundred and fifty dollars. On any testing training week course purchased by March 31st with promo code 17ABW, which I'll put in the show notes. Again, that's 17ABW. And you can sign up at TechWell, and I will put the link in the show notes as well. But uh, $250 if you're near one of those places. I know we have some East Coast listeners probably get up to Boston for one of these courses. They're very well done and recommended.
1: Uh star hasn't happened yet, right?
0: Uh star is always happening somewhere. I mean, there's there's a, there's a west and an east into a Canada. The next star is in May, April or May, I haven't looked, in Orlando.
1: There is a chance that you can still go register for star. Um, also save a bit of cash with yep. the AB testing promo
0: code. Sure, AB testing. On, that was from episode 52, I believe. We had that sponsorship. Yep. You can go check that out as well. But anyway, if you are in those areas, want to get a week of training for you or any of your employees, uh, you can use the code 17ABW and get some money saved for you or your employer.
1: Thank you, TechWell.
0: Thank you, TechWell.
1: Now, as a somewhat completely, totally aside.
0: we That's so rare that we do an aside or any sort of thing off script in our well-prepared show so um you mentioned that
1: the the confirmation bias selection bias right overwhelmingly as long as humans were involved um testers will still be needed so what spawned up in my head was a discussion i had um at work the other day i was listening to the radio, I think it was some NPR show, and uh, a guy mentioned something that uh, hit me pretty hard because I couldn't refute it. And I, he said, our children, so our grandchildren, will never have a driver's license. And I'm like, yeah, that's probably true. But the way things are going, the way trends are going, there is a great deal of things that will be automated, right? To that effect, I'm wondering, you know what? That world where humans aren't needed for testing may not be all that far away.
0: That reminds me. There's a lot of talk of, I mean, as long as there have been testers, there's been talk of automation taking away testers' jobs. And it doesn't work that way. But I think testing, really, this quality professional. But this circuit.
1: is a different kind of automation they're talking about.
0: Yeah, but I saw a discussion just last week on Twitter. Oh, it's because Microsoft wrote, um, there's some research, guys. Uh, I didn't look at it, so I'm sure there's flaws with it. But uh, some auto-programming AI. You describe what you want it to program, and it programs it for you. I didn't even look any farther than that. Then there was a tangent discussion on automation for this and self-testing software, and and it made me think. And I haven't thought this through yet. I should blog about it, but I'm going to talk about it right now instead. Okay. It's easier. So we have talked before, Tequila Shop, uh, about using logs for diagnostics. Like the logs should tell you what went wrong with the program. If you have really great logging and telemetry, you Mm -hmm. can tell the failures in the program. Uh, You're not going to identify just squash the stuff. You're not going to identify like user experience errors and if the screen flashes pink or maybe you could catch that. But a lot of what's going on in the software you can tell what's going wrong via logs. Now we add either some self execution or some self monkey test a diagnostic program that basically executes every, calls everything in the model layer automatically the logs are generated and you kind of have the edge of self testing software. Yeah.
1: And you throw in um, advances in AI techniques. Right, you use
0: AI, adv- and you build an AI engine based on actual patterns of customer data, and it's always modifying the way it self-tests itself. That's a heck of a regression suite.
1: Yeah. I, I, <laughs> actually, that is relevant to a blog you did recently. Um, I was uh, trying to download a, a data science tool um, yesterday. And what this tool professes is that you point it at any data and it will find the interesting patterns in the data and it will find um, uh, the interesting family of functions as well as their um, extrapolation for those patterns. And I could see how a tool... Could do that because that uh, non-trivially, that's a a portion of my day. Mm -hmm. You do it enough times, just like everything else, you realize this this crap can be automated.
0: Yeah. So I think testers or anyone who is afraid of automation is really missing the point. I mean, these things excite me. I'm not yep. that afraid about them taking away my job because someone still needs to figure out how they work, how to take advantage of them, how to make sure the patterns are correct. There's all kinds of other knowledge work that excites me to do. But I think that I think embracing this automation and looking at what it can do for us and looking for ways to extend it and get more out of it and let computers do more of the hard work for us is something it shouldn't be scary to anyone. I think anyone who's scared of it, is has other job security issues they need to address. The, so, knowledge
1: work um, is, I don't know if there's another realm, but knowledge work is not something that has successfully been well automated in, in the past, no. right? But it there is a, a trend um, in the last 10 years on knowledge management and knowledge automation, there's a lot of techniques. <clears throat> um, statistical, machine learning, um, process-oriented techniques around capturing the, the knowledge of individuals. And once, um, like I've known, uh, I don't remember the name of it, but Google has been, um, uh, has a lot of data. And they've been doing inference engines on top of that data and uh about ten years ago, they started doing work on turning their inference engines on the output of the inference engines uh essentially finding new uh, new patterns in the data that there was a very famous example uh of this with the target and the father and the where target oh, yeah, 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 right.
0: look it up, listeners,
1: yep. <laughs> Where where Target's uh, AI learned that this father's daughter was pregnant before uh, the father did, right? Um, yeah, it's a it's a it's a new world.
0: So Let me give you another example. There was three or four years ago, uh, could have been longer. I'm old, I can, I forget. But I was driving to work and Amazon was just coming out with their automated uh, uh, item stickers for a lot of their shipping. And people were afraid, this is taking away jobs. This is automation taking away jobs from people. I thought, wow, this argument sounds familiar. Yep. So here was automation taking away boring work from people and creating some interesting knowledge work. Because now you have automation to go pick these things, but there is still a lot of analysis on how do I optimize how things are laid out in the warehouse to make, the, make life easier for these pickers? How do I make sure that... Uh, you know, can I tweak things to make sure that they're picking the right size boxes and, and all this stuff? So there's plenty of work to do there. What the automation has done, it takes away some of the uh, uh, boring part, which is uh, which is similar to what we've done in test automation. We haven't automated away our our fun exploratory, let me really dig in to figure what's going on here type work. We've automated away the boring stuff.
1: Well, and and again, with current trends, particularly with the onset of of agile, right here I'm thinking about combined engineering. Like non-trivially, we've automated away the the role because we found um, better processes, better approaches. The world changed, like. Um, there, there is an approach you can now take in the services world that you really couldn't take in the on-prem product world,
0: mm-hmm.
1: right? Um, and so, um, the, in my view, the need the need for this dedicated role has definitely lessened, right? Whether or not testing is dead is I think somewhat it, an ir- irrelevant question, but it's
0: it's it, definitely evolving. If you yeah. don't want it to evolve, don't want it to evolve, or don't feel like it's evolving, um, you better buckle up and get along for the ride anyway because it's changing.
1: Oh yeah, it. I mean, well, if you're a listener of this show and you feel that way, I, I yeah, like how did that again, happen? again?
0: We we have, selection, <laughs> we, have, we have selection bias, preaching to the choir, all that stuff. Right. Hey, you know what? We haven't done in a while.
1: Lots of things.
0: Well, there's one thing in particular I'm thinking of. Okay, you know what it is? What is it? Lean in close. <laughs> mailbag.
1: I was concerned. I'm like, you're not gonna kiss me on air again, are you?
0: <laughs> not again.
1: <laughs> <laughs> that one time was enough. <laughs> yeah. Well. All right.
0: So, uh, so we have a mailbag. We do. Exciting. Exciting. From one of the three, .slack.com, our our, our Slack team. Uh, Norium, Canorium, Norium, asks. Felipe. Felipe. A question for Brent, or for BS Data Science, which hasn't started up yet, but question for Brent. Can you share any experience you've had with over-experimenting instead of going with your best foot forward following gut instinct Or extrapolating from a small or a non-stat significant population. Uh, In other words, not pushing a change that will make the product better because you need to provide evidence of the benefits of the change, even if it takes weeks to produce produce such evidence. So, uh, yes, I can. All right. All right. A successful mailbag. (laughs) (laughs) It'd be great. Like we should do do a mailbag. We go. Nope. No idea. All right. Thanks, everybody.
1: All right, so that's the show. No, um, uh, wow, that was a long question with no. It's like lots four, of really long words.
0: It's like four lines, but it has <laughs> words like extrapolating, which is good.
1: Uh, yeah, uh, extrapolating is a great word. Okay, so let's let's
0: take it. Actually, that word wasn't there, but I just want to throw that in there. Oh,
1: <laughs> so um, his question. What it reminds me of is um, the old. The old school, uh, hey, we're about to ship, test and dev are in a triage room, we're all arguing around the bug and no one has any data. Now, he brings up over-experimentation. Not really certain what that concept is, but it kind of reminds me of sort of the intuitionist battles that occurred uh, for me back in those days. Um, And... Uh, A bit of, are we overthinking or overanalyzing the problem? Um, And I would say, I kind of take a different approach when I think about it in terms of a test context than I did back in those days. Back in those days, it was, so let's say we found a, a, a bug, right, and... Really, what we're trying to judge is what is the customer impact, right? Um, Now, I would say back in those days, those were important discussions because, um, again, it was an on-prem product world, and it was a high time cost if we made the wrong judgment. Mm -hmm. But... So what we did is we judged it by perceived customer impact is it going to be a two percent case or is this going to impact the 50% case right knowing what I know now um, if this if this was really important right then then we would have um, handed it off to usability and said hey we're gonna we'll do a, a fake a B test we're gonna give you two versions of the of the product one with this one without right um and there just be nvp uh skins of the product so that it's really cheap to produce um and then we just let the usability training come to the uh, opinion the one problem though that he talks about the way i i'm remembering it was essentially hey we're having a big debate um, being blocked by lack of evidence, and the time it's going to take to produce the evidence uh, is outside of our, our window in which we need to close down. For me, it's, it comes down to how do you address two questions?
0: So, uh, second half was, for example, not pushing a change that will make the product better because you need to provide evidence of the benefits of the change, even if it takes weeks to produce such evidence.
1: Okay, so not pushing, not pushing a change that will make the product better. Let's start with that one. How do you know? Right. It, again. And the
0: question is, do you use gut for that, or do you wait for the data?
1: No, no, but better, as you know. Uh, proactively to you know uh, say that listeners of this podcast know that that um, the producers of the a B testing podcast firmly state product better is defined by the customer mm-hmm. right so um, pushing a change that will make the product better uh, under that context implies that you have some data. Or, or you're just travel. taking a, 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 um, a sort of a white, uh, an ivory tower uh, point of view, uh, intuitionist opinion. Mm-hmm. Now, so <clears throat> I guess the question comes down to what's the risk of being right? What's the risk of being wrong? And, and uh, what's the ROI in those two conditions? Um, if... Given that there's a, a timeline, what I would say is if 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 the ROI of whatever's under discussion is potentially high enough, if there is reason to believe that um, this is a big deal, then what you do is you spend your time um, finding evidence. Uh, you don't do it as a as a pure. Um, you don't go down and you don't try to um, do a full three-month data science project on this. You, you, you take the time that you have available and you reduce as much uncertainty on this question as you can.
0: So let me... If,
1: if, if this is a brand new product that the world doesn't know about, then you're going to have to... Uh, make and, a gut call and, right. then- and
0: and your customers are people that you can't get in contact with or you don't have any yet it's right. tough but this kind of goes back to uh let me know if this makes sense to you when Kent Beck first talking about agile he right. was uh implementing software for the people that were sitting upstairs he could actually involve the customers daily and get them involved. You go upstairs and ask them about things. That's data and evidence that can help you make decisions on what's better. Right. Where data science and telemetry and, and where data has come in is when those customers aren't in the same building as us or the same state, same time zone. So we collect that data remotely and we analyze it. So somewhere in between is if... Uh, the exception is when you don't have any customers yet or it's a secret project, hasn't been announced yet. But otherwise... You can contact, maybe you have some early adopter customers. This is easy in Xbox, very easy at Unity also. People want to get on the early, people want to be early adopters.
1: Depending on the product, uh, it's, I think it's easy in all cases. Yeah, cause, right, because
0: if, if someone's a user of your product, you're going to have some faction of those, some percentage of those, who are, yeah, you want me to try something new? Let me know how get some feedback. I'll do that. Sure, no problem. I love you.
1: Yeah, early adopters, they actually, um, uh, so there was a study on this, and early adopters actually get something out of it they're they're willing to take the risk that the product is a little bit crappy to to um, gain the advantage of number one influencing the direction of the product as well as already be ramped up on the product when it really when it hits the shelves
0: but they don't even have to be an early adopter one of the things i've uh about doing, I've never done this before, is setting up some sort of regular uh, just call between like with me, a support person, and some some or a few people at some company and talk about just ideas. And then go, what would you think if we did this? Would that be worse? They go, well, it may, I don't know, I'd be indifferent. Or, oh my God, that'd be awesome. Or don't do that. Oh my God. Just you don't have to implement the crummy feature. Or or the or the feature that you don't have to even implement the A B test. You can just if you have a good rapport there, you can just ask them. And again, it's you have a little bit of sample size issue with one per, one person, but you get a half a dozen of these going on. You could you could get that data in other ways than waiting for, uh, waiting for the long pull of data to come in.
1: As long as you realize that if you're making decisions off of intuition, then there's there's a risk that you're you're making a decision sure. off of bias. So as you if you if you stay objective. And realize that what you're trying to do is remo- remove the maximum amount of uncertainty in the time that you have available. Um, then you 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 go after that. There's multiple different approaches. So as I occurred to me, I'm, I'm speaking with my data science hat on, but I think the agile hat is the one that makes most sense here. Right? It depends on the on the product, but like on my team. Um, my team fixes absolutely zero bugs for purely future proofing um, points of view. Like uh, if one of my one of my reports found a bug and another one of my reports issues uh, in it's code that we've shipped to production, or even if it's not, right, if hey, you know what, one of the things that we could do, Uh, is we could really solidify this widget and harden against this particular concern if you make, you know, this three-day change. And I'm 100% consistent on, no, we're not doing that, (laughs) right? We we don't spend, like, on my particular team, like, I'm already overloaded in my backlog on things to produce where there is customer demand. Mm Mm-hmm. I, I, I simply guide my team um, on, on these ones like great I love the passion and yeah I can definitely see a place where you might be right um, so what I want you to do is the bare minimum is on where this code is I want it abstracted such that if we once we learn that you're right or wrong I want us to to be be able to very quickly shift to the correct position. In other words, I um, so in agile there is there is this practice that's known as or principle known as defer commitment. And what mm-hmm. that means is you you stall making decisions to the very last responsible moment. You don't go all in on oh we had to do it this way because I have been in this industry for ten years and. Oh And I know everything about this. Anytime
0: someone plays the experience card, my eyes roll back to my head.
1: Yes. Um, So, you want to say something?
0: I do. I do. Earlier, I just had a little insight, um, which may be all full of crap. Uh, Earlier, you talked about perceived impact or uh, of a issue, right? And it made me think of something we use at Unity, something I've used at Microsoft for, called user pain. You figure out a combination of how bad is it, how many people does it affect. Etc. You can use the same principle. Maybe it's an inverse, but the same principle as a backlog grooming technique. If I do this item, how many customers does it make happy and how happy do they get?
1: Well, this is why I brought up ROI.
0: So I'm, but you can look at like, well, it makes, well, nobody, but it may make them happier later. Okay. Right down at the bottom. <laughs> <coughs> or you know, you know what I mean? You can look at it the other way. Like, it I'm forces beyond you diplomacy to think about customer one. value and business value as a backlog grooming technique. So you just look at an item. It's not making anybody happier, or it's only making one person happier right now. Okay, the, something bound to be more important to work on right now.
1: Yeah, the, uh, back in the day, I spent a non-trivial of my time um, blocking ships. It, it, no, this is not ready. Producing a bunch of data, this is not ready. We cannot ship this. Uh, against the the scorecard. Today, uh, I'm a 180-degree... No, this thing has to ship. (laughs) Because we can't, in my view, we can't evaluate properly the quality of the product, the usefulness of the product, if this doesn't go out.
0: I had this um, on Teams, when I worked on Teams, uh, I had that argument with our VP, and my manager... All the time, I said we got to ship this of people. Oh, it's not ready yet. Said we're making stuff up. So we need we don't have an MVP. I said, are you kidding? We're self-hosting on this thing for the last four months. Said, well, it needs to have more features. Said, no, we need to get feedback from people, which is opposite. Like here, I am the test quality guy going, no, ship it, ship it, ship it. Well, yeah,
1: no, it it it, it's absolutely to me. It's 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 nonsensical. (laughs) It's going back to the backlog. Like the way, the way I tell my team, I want them to operate. Number one, like, or at least this is how I'm going to operate. Number one, I am concerned about business value first. Okay, not not realized business value. I mean, this means providing business value, not because I said so or the perception of business value, but having an objective point of view. And I don't care what KPI we measure it by, as long as it's measured um objectively um second i'm concerned about calendar time calendar time once we've lost it there's there's no getting it back there's no way of fixing the calendar time problem and then third engineering time right those are limited resources yeah i have some levers i can pull i could i can as an old manager of mine used to say i can order burritos and and um uh, influence people working late. I could try to hire vendors. I could try to articulate a need for additional headcount on my team. There's some levers I can pull on that one. But at the end of the day, um, even even with maximum efficiency, the amount of productivity on my team has a top, has a limit, um, which is underneath what's being asked of me to deliver. So we need a mechanism by which we tie um, my team's capacity and produce the maximum amount of business value. So this ROI discussion around uh, bugs, which is I'm not certain if that's really what Felipe was talking about, but it's just what it reminded me of, um, is kind of – and it's important to try to, to articulate it from a, from a non-intuition point of view. You don't have to overanalyze, right? And matter of fact, you don't have the opportunity to overanalyze because uh, if you agree with what I just said, calendar time and shipping are, are really important considerations. Um, what I would focus on Uh, is, again, high order bit. What's the number one, the cheapest way uh, if if, uh, you were to assign this to somebody and only said, look, I'm only giving you four hours to do this research, uh, but we're going to spend a half hour brainstorming on how we could spend that four hours to maximize the reduction of uncertainty. Then I would focus my attention on how do we prove if we're right or right or wrong once this thing goes out in the field? And how can we, if our decision we're making today is wrong, how can we make sure that the product will allow us to switch mm-hmm. in near real time? Right. Um, look up, uh, flighting.
0: Yeah. If you go, if you have to go by gut, have a way to reverse that decision if you're wrong.
1: Right, and quickly. Yeah. And if you have to go by gut and you can't reverse that decision if you're wrong, I would argue that you've got problems in your process that you need to solve before trying to solve this one.
0: Yep. Agree completely. Anything else, Brent? Nope. All right. This has been episode 55.
1: 55.
0: 55. AB Testing. I'm Alan. I'm Brent. See you next time. (laughs)